Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this, well, this is a double shot episode. That's right, folks. Not one, but two interviews this week. First up, we're going to talk to A.B. Patterson, who writes noir uh, from Down Under, uh, a former law enforcement officer who writes a PI detective who uh, is a little bit of wish fulfillment, uh, as we'll discuss. And then after that, we come a little closer to home, actually really close to home. As you probably know, if you're a frequent listener, I live in central Oregon and my guest, Bill Cameron, is an Oregonian. And one of his books is uh, set in a, uh, well, a kind of a made up version of right around the place where I live. So I talked to him about uh, that and uh, his other series as well. A nice guy that I know from way back. Uh, so a couple of great guests for you this week. Before we get started with either one of them, though, I do need to remind you that Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. If that sounds like something you'd enjoy, and if you're listening to this show, I'd say it's 6-5 or Pick'em that uh, you would, then uh, hustle on over to their website, uh, downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. All right, uh, and now for our first guest. Uh, A.B. Patterson, as I mentioned, is a, a retired police officer living down in Australia. He's got a cool noir detective series that we're going to talk about. He's also the editor of an anthology that I was fortunate enough to contribute a story to. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that as well as a little bit of a, well, as a resource he's put together that uh, any mystery reader would be very glad to know exists. So how about if we jump right in and talk to A.B. Patterson? Well, hey, Andrew, welcome to the show. Good morning, Frank. Uh, good morning down here anyway, and great to be here. Thank you very much. <laughs> it is it is afternoon here, and I'll tell you, you, you're not the first Australian I've talked to, but it is always confusing to figure out what the hell time it is and what day it is. And uh, I, I, we were talking a few minutes ago, and I finally figured out the easiest way for me on the West Coast is just to uh, subtract five hours and then say tomorrow, and I'm at the right time. Yeah, it's confusing too. Uh, when when traveling, I've uh, I've had one trip so far to uh, the west coast of the US, and of course you're crossing the date line and you're arriving before you even left, and it, it does get rather confusing. <laughs> I guess that uh, we have achieved time travel then, huh? <laughs> well, we we have a few things in common. Uh, we've crossed we paths uh, more than once, but probably the biggest thing we have in common. Uh, is both being writers and both being writers who served in law enforcement. Uh, aside from that, though, I mean, I did my policing in, in the northwest corner of the U.S., and you did yours down under. Where exactly uh, were you a police officer? So uh, I did all my police service in Western Australia, so on the other side of the country from where I am now, uh, and was based in Perth, the capital city over there for the whole time, the uh, most isolated capital city on the planet, that one. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> a long way from anywhere. <laughs> How long were you on the job? Ah, so 13 and a half years. And, um, yep. and, and I have 
I have some inside information, so I'm going to appear really smart, but I, I really, this is all a setup. Um, you, you did serve in a detective uh, capacity during that time. Uh, yes, so I did uh, that stage. We had to do five years as a uniformed officer, uh, and then you could apply for the detectives, which I did. So I spent the rest of my career as, as a detective, and most of that time was spent uh, working in child abuse and pedophilia. And then I did my last uh, 18 months of service in uh, Vice Squad. Wow, that's uh, those are both assignments that most cops would, um, you know, have the attitude of, uh, I need to take several showers a day to deal with this stuff. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you get used to it to a degree to where you can kind of keep it at an arm's length. But I mean, I, I did not deal with a whole lot of child molestation cases. They made a, a specific sexual assault unit shortly after I became a detective. Uh, whereas they used to farm out all the abuse cases just to the general detectives. Yep. I was glad they did that because then you get the kind of expertise that someone like you was able to develop and that made for a much higher catch them rate, a much higher conviction rate and much fewer mistakes. So uh, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. I did have to do a few and they were the, uh, some of the ickiest cases I ever had to deal with. Yeah. And I think as you'd be obviously well aware too, frankly, you know, it, a lot of it comes down to, you know, the ability to compartmentalize. Uh, what you have to deal with, because let's face it, not not just dealing with child abuse, but you know, all all there are a lot of aspects of, of police mm -hmm. work where you're dealing with stuff which we're simply not programmed to deal with, uh, and of course, you know, you're seeing stuff that you cannot unsee, much as we might like to. So, it is it is trying to compartmentalise it. Although, uh, as uh, as many of us know that uh, that uh, that may work well at the time, but uh, it can uh, come back and haunt later on. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, that is a very yeah. true. And the hardest part about compartmentalizing, I found, uh, you know, when you're just dealing with what you see, it, you know, it, it it's hard enough. But if there's a touchstone in your own life that relates to what you're seeing, that makes it hard. If you have a two-year-old and you go to a abuse case worth a two-year-old, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that makes it harder to compartmentalize than if you, say, aren't a father yet or your kids are much older. It's a little easier to... To compartmentalize. Did you find that as well, or was I uh, the strange one? <laughs> Not at all. I, th I think. Um, I mean, I didn't have any uh, kids of my own, although there were detectives in the unit who did, um, and were still doing the work, obviously. But I think, yeah, it's for me one of the reasons for d doing that work um, was I went there on a, a training stretch to start with, and really enjoyed it. So when I'd finished my detective training period, I asked to go back. Um, and it was the only squad we had where uh, nobody got sent there. You had to be a volunteer. So, Makes sense. Makes um, sense. <clears throat> and, but for me, I guess, it, and I thought, more about, I thought a lot more about it as I've got older, actually, but um, I think what really resonated for me was um, that it was the one area, more than any other, where you were helping those who couldn't help themselves. Yeah. Um, and I think that was uh, made it very rewarding. I mean, people have often said to me, oh, that must have been impossible doing that sort of work. Well, um, it was actually very satisfying, and, you know, you get some strange looks <laughs> from people who haven't worked in, the, in law enforcement. Um, but it was. It was very satisfying, and I think, uh, you know, to, to a degree, I mean, I think for a lot of us who have served in law enforcement, um, the sense of justice is something that's very strong. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, particularly when, when you're dealing with, with children um, who have been victimised, uh, I think there's, there's something for me innately satisfying about bringing those people down. Yeah, you, you learn in that job 
you know, unfortunately, very early on, that true victimhood is a rarity. I mean, you either have criminals, you know, having something bad happen to them, interacting with other criminals, or you have good people making very bad choices purposefully, or you have good people just being idiots for a moment in their life and doing something <laughs> stupid. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm walking you down the culpability ladder here a little bit, but you never hardly ever get to the very bottom of that ladder where person did absolutely nothing wrong and had this terrible event visited upon them. And it happens, uh, but certainly it happens in the instances that you're talking about. And I, I don't want to get into the details because I still think they're icky, but I do understand uh, the satisfaction that you would have gotten from from helping those those victims, especially because they had, had no agency to help themselves. Um, when you worked vice, uh, what, what, what did that focus on? I know what it would focus on here, but pretty much the same thing in, in Australia. Uh, well, in, uh, in Western Australia, it was all, uh, prostitution and pornography. So that was, that was what vice was. Um, drugs were dealt with separately by a drug squad. Prostitution illegal. <laughs> uh, it's a complicated question, believe it or not, Frank. <laughs> well, it's so complicated here if too. I, if I, I mean, I, you know. if I can give you a little bit of history with, uh, and why vice squad was, um, a fascinating, albeit somewhat farcical, role as, as a detective. So prostitution in terms of uh, organised brothels or, uh, was illegal in Perth, in Western Australia. Um, that had a royal commission uh, back in the 1970s, which recommended law change. And in the meantime, recommended that the police commissioner run what they called a containment policy, where the vice squad effectively supervised the brothels according to a certain set of guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> recipe for all sorts of problems. <laughs> so you weren't a vice uh, officer, you, know, you were uh, an assistant to the pimp. This, you, <laughs> well, the, uh, you, you tell people this and they just, no, that couldn't happen on this planet. And yes, it did. And it still does. Um, so effectively, there was a set of guidelines established for the running of brothels um, by the police commissioner, which involved no men allowed in the management of the industry, regular health checks, you know, all sort of normal sensible stuff where brothels are regulated under the law. Um, and the vice squad had the job of policing that. <laughs> so, you know, that's really no different than liquor control board, you know, sending their agents mm, out to true. make sure that people aren't getting overserved or, you know, they're yep. pouring, you know, cheap stuff into top shelf bottles and, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just a slightly different, slightly different. <laughs> yes. So you had a, a fascinating uh, sort of work of um, going around and visiting all the brothels and, and speaking with the girls and um, women and making sure that everything was, was okay. And uh, occasionally having to answer complaints from working girls who'd ring up and say they hadn't been allowed to change the sheets and <laughs> this sort of stuff. So, um, and then of course you had the, um, the other end of the, um, the quite tragic end of the sex work market with uh, the street girls and uh, and obviously the policing of that, which was uh, uh, very sad. And in fact, having come out of working in child abuse for several years, of course, uh, not only um, did you realise that uh, there was actually a lot of overlap between those areas, um, but I, you in fact met some of the victims you dealt with in the child abuse unit who were now working on the streets. Yeah, it's amazing when, when a suspect you know, commits a crime, how large of an impact and how long of an impact that single moment can have. Uh, I mean, it depends on the crime, of course, but something like what you're talking about, you know, a lifetime is touched. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, you know, I know this has to be true because it was true for me and every other cop I talked to. So unless you are... <laughs> 
totally unique. This is also true of you. In your career, there had to be times where you wish there was some things you could do to deal very directly and maybe a little bit cavemanish with a problem that was in front of you that obviously either the law policy or good manners dictated you could not do that. So you didn't. Um, when it came time to start writing, though, your your guy, Harry Kenmare, strikes me as a little bit of wish fulfillment in that department once in a while. Am I, <laughs> am I off base here? No, you're bang on the money, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I, you're absolutely right. And um, yes, I think for a lot of us who, are, particularly those, you know, you know, those who've done the, the hard frontline policing roles, you know, yes, yeah, I think we would. You know, I think if anybody said that they'd never had those moments, they would be um, perhaps being less than forthright. But um, I think with, with then writing um, crime fiction. Um, it does. It gives you this, as you would know yourself, it gives you this wonderful form of being able to do what the hell you want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, you know, um, I mean, I, I think you need to set some parameters around that, I guess, because if you have potentially a, a character who, um, you know, say, say you have an ex-police officer like my Harry Kenmare character is, um, you know, he, he and I share some common background. Um, I hasten to add that uh, I left the uh, police force with uh, uh, honourable resignation and a certificate of good service. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Harry, of course, got uh, got kicked out for belting that rock spider. So, <laughs> um, for the audience who doesn't speak uh, uh, Australian police uh, dialect, a rock spider is a child molester. Well, if okay. you're going to get kicked off the force, I can't think of a you know. I mean, you know, it's, not, it's, it's a pretty good ticket to get punched. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got a rather more nobility to it than uh, stealing money or drugs. So, um, just a bit. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I think with with having the fictional character, you um, because you, know, you you have to be able to get people to like your main protagonist. He can be or she can be as flawed as you want them to be, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, I think for most readers, if they can't find something about that character that touches them somewhere inside mm -hmm. um they're not going to stick with you as a reader uh, in terms of your character so but i think you know i think flawed heroes are far more interesting than uh, the white knights yeah here in the states we we had a, a for a long time we had a, a clint eastwood character uh, dirty harry callahan uh worked in san francisco carried a 44 magnum I mean, i'm sure you've heard of dirty harry we're, we're of an age so uh, <laughs> i've, but, got, the, I've I mean, got the box set <laughs> <laughs> but but you know i mean having been in all different roles in the police department including a leadership role i mean i can't imagine being a lieutenant or a captain and having a harry callahan in your squad it would be a nightmare but as a reader <laughs> or a viewer and if he yep. existed in real life by the way he'd be drummed out of the department and probably sent to jail for the things he did but because he has a code that most people can at least somewhat identify with and you know his acts are fictional he gets away with that kind of stuff uh, and he gets away with some pretty horrible stuff and saying some pretty snarky things. And, and I get the feeling that uh, Harry Kenmare does some of the same kinds of things. Uh, he does. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, it comes back to what we touched on before. It's about that sense of justice. And I think that's why a lot of people, um, I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed um, the Dirty Harry movies and I know what a lot of the common criticisms of them are, but uh, there is that sense of justice being dished out, um, you know, and if you think back to the original one with, uh, with ironically, a child molester, of course, mm -hmm. um, 
a child murderer, um, and he ends up getting his just desserts. And I mean, most people are not going to shed a tear over that. Um, and so people do turn a blind eye to the, to the methods that are used. But of course, it is fictional. Yeah. Uh, and you're absolutely right that it, you know, there's, that would be uh, not tolerated in any form. And I'm not suggesting it should be tolerated uh, within the policing system either. But, but it makes great fiction. It does make great fiction um, because you know, we, the, the sense of justice is something which is very central to human nature. And, uh, and that's why I think one of the enduring uh, appeals of crime fiction generally, um, that it's about getting justice served up. So Harry Kenmare, uh, absolutely. Uh, he, he does all sorts of uh, naughty things. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that I chose for that as my first main character anyway, because I'm, I'm broadening out a bit now, but uh, I chose for my first main character to have a, a, a PI who was an ex-cop rather than writing um, a police procedural um, or, or a police-based character uh, because it gave me more freedom in terms of what he could do uh, and it'd still be plausible because if, if I had a character as a serving officer who was doing what my PI Harry Kenmare does, um, <laughs> again, <laughs> uh, he would be a very bad cop indeed and, uh, and I think you, you start to stretch the plausibility then for the reader. So. I mean, realism is something that I think, uh, you know, and plausibility I think is important. So. Yeah, you mean, I mean, you, you create the constructs within which people judge that r realism, but you have to play by your own rules. And yeah, the stuff you're talking about, this guy doing, if he did it on the job, would not work out very well. He's got a great voice. Even in the introduction on, on, on your website, you can hear the gravelly sort of, uh, this is the way it is. And, you know, I'm going <laughs> to give it to you straight. And, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, even, even I noticed like he talks about his ex-wife a little bit, but he, he admits <laughs> He admits that he married a woman who was shallow. Yes. You know, I mean, he doesn't, he seems like he's, he's willing to acknowledge his own shortcomings as well. Like he's not this super arrogant, I've never done anything wrong. Look at everybody else who's an idiot sort of character. Absolutely. I mean, he, he's, he's very flawed in, in, a, in a number of ways, but he's also got at heart uh, a very strong sense of, uh, of ethics um, and, and justice. Um, and it's, 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 one of the things I really enjoy at writing the character is being able to blend those those aspects, which sometimes clash um, mm -hmm. together, mm -hmm. uh, to make the, the the broader character. But I think, yeah, with his, uh, you know, he, I think he's got a reasonable level of, of introspection, um, and the short story collection, and that's the the introduction to him um, that you're referring to, is is from the beginning of the short story collection, uh, which I've written in the first person, whereas the novels are written in the third person. So mm. that um, I wanted to try the first person for the short stories because um, it gives you that immediacy to it and that closeness mm -hmm. to the character. And I think for the short stories, it works well. Um, I'd made the decision originally on the, because I mean, a lot of the classic crime fiction I've read and enjoyed, you know, like Chandler, uh, McDonald, um, you know, they're, they're, those characters, um, you know, Marlowe and Archer are first person all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but for the novels, I wanted to be able to switch point of view when I needed to. And so third person uh, is the, was the obvious choice for the novels. And, you know, that's, that's something I'm sticking with for the novel because it is interesting to be able to get into other people's heads for certain scenes. Yeah, it gives you a little more, little more latitude uh, yeah. in your story. But, but for the short stories, it's great. You stay inside Harry's head and you are getting Harry you know, full bore, you know, both barrels straight in your face. So. Well, there's that short story collection. And then there are two novels out right now. Uh, what, are the, what are they called? So the first novel was uh, was Harry's World, and that introduced Harry to the world. That came out uh, twenty fifteen, 
Um, and then the, the sequel to that was Harry's Quest. And uh, as you can guess from the title, he's, uh, he starts on a hunt. And uh, that's, that came out in 2018. And then uh, the third novel, Harry's Grail, uh, is a work in progress. So I'm hoping to have it out by the end of the year. But, you know, <laughs> you know how it is, Frank, <laughs> the timing and <laughs> things go up and down. So, uh -huh. um, so uh -huh. that, yeah. Uh, and then after that, I'll wait and see. I, I, I think I could spend um, probably the rest of my writing days uh, creating Harry's stories. Whether I'll do a fourth novel or not, I don't know. I'm certainly doing more short stories for him. So uh, at some stage, there'll be a second collection of short stories come out as well. Your police background obviously comes to bear in the novels, um, but um, I wanted to bring up something that you have done that uh, I think shows just an appreciation for other folks out there like you, and that is, you know, uh, law enforcement officers who who write crime fiction. Uh, yep. On your website, you actually have uh, what has become a rather large depository of information. <laughs> yes. You know, maybe, you, ever. <laughs> maybe you could uh, share that with the, with the listeners. Absolutely. Um, look, it's, uh, I've got all sorts of reasons why uh, I wanted to write. Um, a lot of it is about telling stories about what goes on out there, um, because I think it is important. Um, because you know, whilst I write fiction, a lot of it is, is very close to reality and things that I've uh, experienced or things I've investigated, as I'm sure you would uh, you'd be able to relate to that. Mm -hmm. um, I think in terms of, of, of crime writing, and particularly when we're talking about police procedurals, but crime writing generally, I think is, it's, it's relevant to that as well. I think the fact that uh, when you've been out there, you've done the work on the streets uh, as, uh, as a cop or some equivalent role like an FBI agent or something like that, um, I think if you then decide to start writing, that of course gives you um, a level of knowledge uh, that can imbue a realism to the work, which uh, I don't think any other writer can really do justice to. I mean, you certainly get some crime writers who have never been anywhere near police work. Um, they do very careful research and all the rest of it, and they do produce very good books or very good stories. But there's something about reading authors who have been police uh, that I think just sets them apart in terms of just the tone and the realism and things to pick up on. Um, so to give you my start for that, it was back in uh, the 1980s, when I was, I think in your language, a rookie. Um, <laughs> we don't use that term down here, but... Uh, what do you say? Uh, I would say a, a probationary constable, a uniform ah. constable. So mm -hmm. um, so uh, back in the 1980s when I started and uh, I was introduced to uh, the works of Joseph Wambor. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, the grandfather of it all. Yes, exactly. And uh, of course, he was writing fascinating stories about uh, uh, cops in Los Angeles. Um, which was uh, rather more um, interesting than uh, sleepy old Perth in Western Australia. However, <laughs> you know, the realism uh, was, uh, even as a, as a young uniformed officer, you know, the, 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 you were reading things about, you know, cops doing stuff, uh, albeit it was in a different country. There's a lot of commonality. And it really resonated in terms of what he was writing. So that was where I, I first got interested in uh, what I now refer to as cops writing crime. And then when I started uh, seriously as, as an author, uh, I, I thought, well, I, I'm going to have a look around and just see how many others I can find crime fiction authors who have uh, also served as law enforcement. Um, and I thought I'd end up with a fairly small group, but <laughs> as you know from the website, <laughs> it's nothing like that. Um, but it's been fascinating because, uh, you know, I've collected um, and I've still got people on, on lists to finish doing the research and adding them on, but there's over 300 on there now uh, from around the world. Uh, you know, as you would expect, 
the, uh, the American contingent is the biggest, and that's to be expected, you know, given the size of the country. But there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of Brits on there as well, and, and some Australians, some Canadians, um, and then a range of others from other countries that I've been able to find. So, uh, yeah, that was um, the start of that project, which has, has grown beyond any, <laughs> any proportion I ever envisaged. What's the criteria? What's, what's, the, what's the bar that you have to clear if you're, if you're going to be <laughs> on that list? Um, okay, it's, uh, well, it has to be first, the, the, the one easy um, black and white bar is it has to be crime fiction. So there's a lot of true crime out there, memoirs of service, uh, all of these things, uh, and, you know, and some very great examples of those written by uh, former law enforcement officers or former police officers. Um, but it was only crime fiction uh, that I was after for it. So that, that's, that's a very firm rule. If I had um, one short story, would that be enough? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple on there who've got um, one or two short stories um, and they're working on novels or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really the fact that you know, you've, you, you've published crime fiction uh, and because you've served in law enforcement, you, you know, you're able to bring that level of realism to it. So um, in terms of having served in law enforcement, that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. <laughs> but, I imagine. Um, partic- particularly from, uh, from the perspective of uh, you guys over in, the, over in the US because you have all sorts of different law enforcement agencies. Um, it's, uh, down here, it's a bit more, there's the police and that's really about it. Um, and we have different police forces, obviously, around the country, but police uh, is police, whereas um, you, of course, have your FBI, you've got all your, your, your police forces, your police departments, you've got your sheriff's officers, you've got, mm-hmm. yeah, the list goes on, as you know, far better than yeah, I do. We're, um, we're, we're and, a mess. You know, and that's all law enforcement. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I, I give a lot more latitude um, in terms of that. Um, yeah, and then there's there's a couple of people in, in the group who um, haven't been sworn officers, but they've spent many years working in police departments, you know, as, as analysts or those sort of roles. Um, and then there's a few people on the list who um, are private investigators by background and write private investigator crime fiction. So there's a little bit of flexibility there. But <laughs> they, they get the honorable but, mention on the list, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but, but the, but the, uh, the, the most, yeah, the vast majority um, have served as what you know, I would understand as, as police officer or a law enforcement officer. Um, and are now writing crime fiction, so or have written crime fiction. So yes, it's it's as you've seen, it's it's a very long list now, and it's uh, it's quite a broad one. It's it's been a fascinating project, and it's obviously not over. Well, this next part is going to sound a little bit like self promotion, but I promise that's not the intention. <laughs> um, but you drew on that list uh, to put together an, an anthology recently, and when I say recently, I mean it, it came out uh, February of 2022. Indeed, um, and it was. Great to have you on board with that project. So it's a bit of self promotion for me, I guess, as well, Frank. So, but we'll be transparent around that. Well, you're that. you're you're um, the you're the guest. You're supposed to be promoting. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I I get to do the Zafiro update at the end of the episode. I shouldn't be hogging your promotion. Ah, uh, so, so right. please promote. So, that, that's that's quite all right. So the the concept uh, for the anthology uh, it's called to serve, protect, and write. Uh, cops writing crime fiction, um, and I've optimistically uh, called it Volume One. <laughs> but uh, the, the the impetus for that was uh, was twofold. One was my interest, um, as as we've been talking about, in cops who have turned to writing crime fiction um, and the realism they can bring to those stories. Uh, and the second was the, the the short story in the anthology format, which I've got into a lot over the last few years, um, and obviously I've written short stories myself and had them published around the place. So. I won't start waxing on about the short story form and its, <laughs> its merits, but um, I think uh, an anthology, uh, in brief terms, um, I, I love them because it, it showcases a whole range of authors in a short space. 
um, the reader can get a taste of a whole lot of different authors without having to try and read, um, you know, pick a novel for each one, for instance. Um, and if they like those authors, then they can go and explore them more, which is exactly what I've done over the last few years of reading anthologies. So hence, for instance, I came across your, your work in the first instance. So uh, what I wanted to do was I thought, well, I'll, uh, I'll try and put one of these together myself. Um, so that's when I reached out to um, people from the Cops Writing Crime, as I call it, the squad, um, those who I was connected to on social media, and then got a number of people coming back. Um, and then it gradually whittled down because people sort of show an interest and then decide not to or whatever. But we ended up with, um, including myself, 15 stories from around the English-speaking world. It's a good number for an anthology. Yeah, I thought it, it worked well at the end of the day. And so we've got uh, uh, nine of you from the United States. We've got four Brits, uh, one Canadian, um, and myself as the uh, Australian representative in there. So, And it is. It's, it's been a great project. It's I've learned a lot about project management in terms of the anthology as well, <laughs> believe me. So, <laughs> next it's not as easy as it, people think, is it? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, um, and it was complicated with the pandemic, and then it was also delayed because uh, it just happened that everything I ended up with to start with, there wasn't a single female author um, in the mix. Um, and I very much wanted to have that range of voices. So uh, I had to go out and um, cajole is the probably the polite word for it. Um, some of them might say it was more like harassment. Um, but I had to go out and round up a number of uh, the female members from the squad to try and persuade them. We ended up with, with four uh, of our female uh, ex-law enforcement officers contributing. I, I think the, the then collection uh, ended up um, you know, a lot richer uh, for the inclusion of those, those yeah, four female voices. Yeah. It, they add a very different tone to it, which is great. Um, but I, I think you know, the, the overall, the, the stories, um, as you know, you've, <laughs> you've already seen it, um, it's a very, uh, can I use the word, eclectic mix of stories. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, uh, but you know, they've all, in their own way, they've got something of the police touch and the police realism to them. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that was what I set out to achieve. I didn't have a particular theme for the anthology at all, other than uh, you know, we wanted, some, wanted to see some, you know, something from the police soul on the page. Um, and I think everybody, in their own way, um, delivered that. Yeah, I think if people like police stories, if they like procedurals, if they like police detective stories, then they'll enjoy the anthology because Mm. there's some of that in there for everybody and there's just different takes on it. And I don't think you want an anthology that, I mean, it's great to have it linked with a theme and to have it, you know, between certain foul lines so that you know what you're getting into. But once you step on the field and and you know where the foul lines are, you kind of want to run all over the field. You don't want to just stay in one place. And so... (laughs) Having, you know, those different voices and, and people coming at it from, you know, patrol, from detectives, from, you know, from all these different angles, time frames. There's people who wrote in the past. My story was futuristic. Uh, yep. pres- a lot of present day stories in there. Um, I, I think it makes for a really in- enjoyable read. And I was, I have to tell you, I was really happy to be part of it. The story that I sent to you is a story that the first scene and the title and the concept sat on my hard drive since about 2007. And I never had the opportunity, never the catalyst to grab it and finish it because, you know, it just didn't have a fit anywhere exactly. And then this came along and I thought, you know, mm-hmm. I want to be, I want to be part of this. What story should I write? And then I, I said, well, yeah, go look at what I have on the hard drive. Cause you never know. Usually I breeze over that stuff and nothing fits, but then I hit on that one and I was like, eh. so I opened the file and I read that for, I was like, ah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this work. This will work. And and I was really happy with how it turned out. Um, so, you know, save your stuff, people. I mean, you never know uh, <laughs> if it's a decent idea, it might find a home eventually, you know? Yeah. And I, I, uh, your, your story, um, 
grabbed me on on two levels, not only because of of the um, absolute realism um, with with the police officers involved and the exchanges between them and the reminiscing, which I thought was great, but it was also one of my other great areas of reading love, um, apart from crime fiction, is dystopian fiction. Mm-hmm. The uh, future, and I would call it somewhat dystopian aspect of your, of your short, uh, story, oh, yeah. The Last Cop, uh, is very much down that path as well. Um, and uh, it really, uh, really did it for me as a story. And uh, and you uh, you helped out enormously, of course, having set it in the future. You gave me a natural point to end the anthology on. So <laughs> Because that was always a problem about how to arrange the stories. And so you ended up going approximately chronologically in terms of setting. Yeah, because the two of the authors had produced stories written um, in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, about policing, um, and then of course yours is set in the future, um, and everybody else was more or less contemporary. Um, so it sort of gave me the natural start point and the natural end point because once I got all the stories in, one of the, one of the big dilemmas was how on earth am I going to arrange these um, in, in some sort of order? So yeah, the the, the chronological aspect uh, sort of was obviously wasn't planned; it just happened that way, um, and then everything else fell in between. So I was happy with the way it worked out at the end. So yeah, I think it turned out fantastic. All right. Well, uh, I'm really glad I got you on the show. And uh, but before we get rolling here, um, you know, I, I want to do Harry justice because he's a, a, a neat character and we didn't spend a ton of time talking about him. Um, so I thought it would be good if people kind of knew who Harry was, what they can expect when they dive into those short stories and those two novels and uh, the forthcoming one. Uh, Harry's Grail eventually. And so uh, there's something on your page that I thought maybe you could read from that really uh, sums him up just great. No problems. I hate injustice. I hate hypocrisy. I hate misogyny. I hate bullies. And I hate the establishment. A long list. No shortage of candidates in Sydney. And wherever I can deliver karma, I'll do so in spades. You might love me or you might hate me. But you'll never forget me. Cheers, Harry. <laughs> now, if that doesn't tell you who a character is, then, you know, I mean, th- nobody should go in there and uh, complain they didn't know what they were getting into after that, I don't think. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, folks, the uh, author is A.B. Patterson. Uh, the series is the Harry Kenmare series. You can find the anthology To Serve, Protect, and Write, a cops writing crime fiction online. Amazon is a great place, but uh, I'm sure it's pretty much everywhere. And uh, Andrew, where can people find out more about you and uh, read the rest of that uh, diatribe from Harry? <laughs> so my home uh, on the web is uh, www.abpatterson.com.au. So that's, uh, that's my home online as well as various social media channels. But yeah, my website is my home base. So, And the Crime Squad is connected to there? It is indeed. So on, the, uh, on that, on, under my reading, you'll find the uh, Cops Writing Crime link. Um, and you can uh, go and have a look at all the long, long list of uh, former, and some still serving, I might add, but uh, you know, law enforcement officers who have decided to turn their experience and their knowledge into crime fiction. Well, and uh, one of which is you. And uh, I want to say, Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. Frank, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, It's been great getting to know you through the project. And thank you so much for having me on your show. All right, folks, there you go. A.B. Patterson, a great guy. Uh, interesting take on a lot of things. Uh, it's funny to me, having been a law enforcement officer, how uh, there are many things that are quite similar no matter where you go here in the United States or abroad, 
And then there are things that are, are different uh, within the states and, and when you go to other countries. Uh, it's always fascinating to explore those. Check out Andrew's uh, detective series. And uh, and uh, if it interests you, the to serve, protect, and write anthology. All right. Normally, I give you a Zafiro update after the guests, but I'm going to slide it in here in between the guests this week. Not a whole lot to share, actually, other than a little bit of a preview in that uh, my third Spokompton book, All the Pieces Fall, will be coming out at the end of March. So March 31st of 2022. I'll talk more about that in an episode a little closer to the release. Uh, The only other thing I wanted to share with you, though, is that, as some of you may know, uh, Frank Zafiro is a pen name. My real name is Frank Scalise, and I do write under that name. I wrote a hockey novel called All That Counts. I write a middle-grade sports series, uh, Sam the Hockey Player. But uh, I'll have four novellas coming out under that name this year. And the first one uh, is dropping on March 15th. Uh, That is called A Village of Strangers. And it is, well, I would not call it literary. That would be a little pretentious, but it's certainly a little more literary than maybe my crime fiction and it is about grief loss tenacity uh the power of music and the power of community and uh how to continue on after tragedy so some pretty deep dark stuff uh spoiler alert but ultimately i think it is uh, also uplifting and not very long it's a novella so that is coming out on march 15th a village of strangers by me in my real name frank scalise so if that sounds interesting to you please check it out All right, uh, that's it for the Zafiro update. Let us move on to our second guest of the episode, uh, Bill Cameron. And as Bill and I discuss right out of the shoot, uh, we met quite a while ago. And uh, at the time I was from Washington. Now I live in Oregon where he has lived for a long while. Uh, And uh, our paths have crossed intermittently since then, although we haven't really spoken in a long while. And that, uh, to be honest with you, is one of the coolest things about doing this podcast, getting to meet people I might not have otherwise met and, and talked to them, but it's also great for reconnecting to uh, uh, friends and acquaintances that I haven't talked to in a long time. So I think it's fair to say Bill is a an eclectic author when it comes to his books, and uh, you'll discover that as he and I chat. So let's meet Bill Cameron. Well, hey, Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. You know, we have known of each other for quite some time, uh, but we first met a long time ago. Um, I'm trying to remember what year it was, but it was before 2010. Yes. Um, And it's at a now deep, it was at a a bookstore that is now defunct. Yes. Murder by the Book in Portland. Yeah. I think, I think it was probably 2007 or 2008 is what I'm my, you know, because I was thinking about that this morning myself, trying to remember exactly when. And, uh, you know, we lost that bookstore not too long after mm-hmm, that. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, that was a that was a, a tough hit for those of us in in Portland. That that was a cool store. If I remember, it was a little narrow, uh, <laughs> yes. but very deep. And the, I mean, it was just a mystery lovers. Uh, haven. I mean, it was like the Seattle Mystery Bookshop. It was just yes. so any mystery you want was there. And I mean, you didn't have to ask, do you have, you could ask where is. Right. 
and 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 so knowledgeable you know all you had to do was give them you know one or two things that you'd read recently that you liked and they were going to give you a list of 10 or 15 to pick from you know right from the shelves and you were there i believe to talk about lost dog at the time is that am i remembering correctly yeah that was uh they were my first uh live book event as a as a brand new baby oh, really? author yeah was was lost dog and i started with them i had been going there as a reader for you know quite a few years um mm-hmm. and so you know when i had the uh, you know a, a book of my own they were my first choice and you know i mean that speaks to what a great store it was living you mm-hmm. know in this the city of powell's true um, you know not that i i mean powell's is great too but i really loved that store and and you know Powell's is a general bookstore. I mean, it's independent, but it, it still miss it. it. Yeah. It carries every, it carried everything. Right. I mean, right. You know, from nonfiction to fiction and, and, but that's murder by the book was, you know, mysteries, you know, I mean, they had thrillers there too and stuff, but uh, sure. it was, it was all the mystery genre and, and that's just, it's, it's cool. It was really cool. It was a great event. I don't remember the name, the names of the two women that were, there that day that were running the place, but I do remember how incredibly kind and welcoming they were and how they yeah. treated both of this like Stephen King had come to the store. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were all, yeah. Barbara and, and Barbara, Tom and Jean, I'm blanking on Jean's last name. I'm, I feel bad about that, but, um, and Carolyn also was, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, they, they were wonderful. It's much the I same. St- as- I stay in touch with them. Yeah. Oh, you do. I, a little bit, you know, I'll see them, uh, you know, I like, online events and uh they've come to some you know zoom calls at friends of mystery um and things like that so it's you know it's nice to see their faces from time to time it's uh, much the same as the fate that uh, uh befell seattle mystery bookshop you know also closing back uh in like 18 or so i think yeah yeah, that was a hard loss too. That was another spot that I just, I loved the chance to get to go up there and hang out with those guys. And, you know, and they had, they had a real interesting way of handling those events where it was just, you know, hang out, talk to people as they come in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I spent more time talking about, you know, other people's books than my mm-hmm. own, but yeah. you know, that was the vibe there. And I really liked that. Yeah. And it was hard to get out of there, not having the number of books that you purchased be more than the number of books you sold. And and that's not to say that you didn't move some copies. That just means that there's just so many good books there to get. Yes. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, for those folks that aren't familiar with you, um, I would like to, to take a quick walk through your different titles and series, uh, because there's an interesting dichotomy or maybe even trichotomy uh, <laughs> of your work here. Um, and I suppose since I already mentioned uh, Lost Dog, let's start with this, uh, the uh, Skin Kadash series, uh, which is more of a traditional homicide detective procedural sort of series to a degree. Yeah. 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 So, well, you know, the, the funny thing about the Skin series is it started out not being a series. Uh, Lost Dog, I had originally envisioned it as a standalone. Uh, the main character, Peter McCrawl, Skin wasn't the main character at that point. He was a, an important supporting character. But, you know, he wasn't somebody that I saw as being able to carry a series. He was, you know, an everyday schlub who found himself in a bad situation at, that that he made worse by his own choices. Um, 
So and, it's a little bit noir in that respect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and he got through it to the end. Uh, but in the process, I, you know, I had created some characters that uh, really captured my, uh, my, my attention as a writer and skin of course was one of them. Um, when it came time to start working on the second book though, I was thinking once again, I was going to uh, write a, another standalone. Um, and I came up with the idea of a guy of, a, of a, an investigator who was uh, being treated for cancer and being asked to investigate a series of deaths of other people being treated for cancer that looked suspicious, even though they had been sort of officially treated as natural causes. And um, as I was working on the book, I realized the guy that needed to carry the story was skin. You know, he had uh, started to have a real strong voice in my head and lost dog. And, you know, sort of this irascible cop that was just kind of hanging on. Um, you know, I didn't want to get into some of the other, you know, the, the traditional tropes that you see with detectives that, are, you know, some of which have been overused like that, you know, the alcohol or the fighting with authority, although he has a little bit of a problem with authority, but he's more like, you know, here's a guy who's just a good investigator that um, never fit in completely. So he was perfect to be the guy to pick to investigate a, a crime that maybe wasn't even a crime. Um, and, you know, so then I dug into that. And then the other character with skin that um, came over from lost dog was uh, the coffee shop owner, Ruby Jane Whitaker. And she was, also a lot of fun to write as a, you know, sort of a young woman building a little business empire in the time of coffee. You know, of course, when I first started these coffee was kind of a new thing, you know, it was either, I mean, I grew up in Ohio, so, you know, our coffee was Folgers and Maxwell House. I didn't even know a latte existed until I moved to the Northwest. Um, and of course now you no Dunkin's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, even there it was, uh, you know, you go to Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, 1990 when, when I left the, the, uh, the, uh, East and it was coffee, regular coffee, black and a donut, you know, <laughs> those were your choices. You know, they've gotten kind of fancy too. in in recent years, but, um, you know, so that was, uh, you know, I, I wanted to bring her forward, you know, and as I had mentioned, Peter, the main character of lost dog, he, I felt like I had told his story. So I left him behind and continued on with skin and, uh, and then, uh, you know, it's funny thing, you know, we, we often say that, and, and I believe this firmly that reviews are not for writers, they're for readers. Uh, but there was one reviewer of lost dog who kind of had a problem with something that had happened in the book. Um, it basically he thought that Peter and Ruby Jane, the, the, these two characters kind of ended up in the sack a little too easily, that it wasn't plausible that, she, you know, plausible for Peter, but not for her. She was not the kind of woman that would have tumbled in the sack with this rando that she met. And so suddenly I realized, well, this is a, this is a question that I can answer as part of my storytelling arc. And so I set out to establish who Ruby Jane was as a supporting character to eventually make her uh, kind of the main focus of a story. And that uh, day one, the third book, I did a little bit more with her, kind of built her relationship with skin. But day one was once again, not her story. And it was a story of where skin was literally investigating two different crimes separated by years that turned out to be related without him even, even knowing it. And, uh, you know, that one was probably my most complicated story in that I told it in a very nonlinear fashion. It was the kind of book where people either loved it or hated it because 
some people loved the the time jumps that I did. Uh, I had one reader who told me that he literally tore the book into pieces and rearranged them in the in the correct order, which I thought, you know, <laughs> you got to appreciate the commitment. You know, it's you've, his you've book. made an impression. <laughs> yeah, you know. So I mean, I had it. yeah, yeah, I had to respect that. Um, uh, of course, people that are doing e-readers, it's a lot harder. <laughs> but uh, but then by the by the fourth book, County Line, that was when I was ready to tell Ruby Jane's story and explain, you know, exactly who she was and how she came to be the person that she, you know, that was able to make the choices that she made way back in Lost Dog. And it was all because, a, you know, a reviewer. Uh, you know, said something for readers, but it actually piqued my interest. You know, I thought this is a good question and I need to answer it for myself, if not for anybody else. And uh, County Line was ultimately the most successful of the skin books. Um, so I, I think that I think that I probably did what I set out to do. You never know as a writer, you know, did I do what I wanted? <laughs> Fingers crossed. But uh, but that, you know, that, that was a, a, a real fun arc to follow through the course of four books without, you know, after setting out to not even write, but, you know, but one about these characters and then move on to something else. You are showing your knickers a little bit here, though, by admitting that you read the reviews. I mean, uh, yeah, the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the conventional wisdom is don't read the reviews. And I, I'll bet you only one in 10 authors adhere to that. Oh, I, you know, I, I've gotten better about it. Uh, you know, I'm less concerned about reviews. I don't search for reviews now, uh, but certainly with those first few books, I was eating them up, you know, and, um, you know, I think as you uh, gain experience as a writer, you, you know, I mean, they always say you have to have a thick skin and obviously that's important, but I think you also need to get used to the idea that people uh, are reading and uh, talking about your work and being okay with the fact that, a lot of times they're not going to like it, you know, mm -hmm. I look at reviews every day. Cause I just click on that, uh, Amazon author page there and mm -hmm. you know, the most recent reviews are there, but uh, it's not an ego thing so much as it is a, uh, almost like monitoring the machine and making sure that all the gauges are where they need to be. In other mm -hmm. words, uh, I'm looking for trends, you know, if, if, if I'm getting a bad review, a good review, good review, good review, good review, good review, mediocre review, good review, good review, then I'm happy. That's I'm doing something right, obviously. Yeah. Um, and that bad review is an outlier and maybe it has something good to say and I'll give it a quick read. And, and if I can learn something from it, great, but it doesn't sting. Um, mm -hmm. now if I had a run of bad reviews, I'd feel differently and, and I'd have to start looking at, okay, what did I do wrong here? Or what do I need to do better to address that? Right. That's to me, that's a productive way to look at reviews at this stage in, in either of our careers. I mean, we're not brand new authors, either of us. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but you, you make a very good point, And that is something that my wife is fond of saying about more things than just reviews. And that is not to take it personal. Yeah. Yeah. And he, I mean, cause I, I always try to look at when I do read the reviews and I, you know, every now and then, uh, you know, they'll, they'll cross my path or I'll have a friend who say, well, you know, I saw this review. And, and to me, if someone has made an effort to write something thoughtful, even if it's negative, then I feel like at least I've engaged with them. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm certainly not going to uh, let myself get upset about it. Sure. Yeah. You know, sometimes people, you know, they, they see something that we didn't even know was there and that mm -hmm. can be, uh, that can be really revealing as a writer, you know? Um, I mean, obviously there's the review of lost dog that made me 
literally write three more books. Um, but in the, uh, you know, even, even in little ways, it's, you know, I, I, I like one of the things that reviewers have noted and that I realize I write about a lot is that my books often include strong themes of loss, you know, personal, uh, emotional loss and, uh, strong themes of abuse of authority. Like those are the two things that are sort of like the big picture elements that I write about or themes that I write about. And mm-hmm. I didn't really even know that until I started seeing it pop up and, you know, people talking about the, you know, the books that they've read or the stories that they've read, you know, and now I kind of lean into that because I feel like it's my strength, you know, that's, it's like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is what people are responding to. And, you know, and obviously those themes interest me there, you know, the, something like that, that's so broad, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, sure. obviously. Um, you know, plot wise, I need to get far more in the weeds than loss. Right. You're talking about theme rather than story and plot there, but, right. but, uh, but leaning into it, why not? I mean, lean into what you were already leaning into subconsciously anyway, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, four books that kind of loosely make up what you could call the skin Kadash series, even though he's not yes. always the central character. Um, I think the last one, County Line, was you know, almost a decade ago, though. Is yeah, the series ten, pretty ten well done, ago. or what? Well, you know, I, I I hate to say never because obviously, you know, the people have you know far far better writers than me have said never and then returned. Um, you know, in a broad sense, I feel like I have told Skin and Ruby Jane's story, and of course, Peter did come back in County Line as well. Um, there have been some short stories that featured him. Um, usually, when I do short stories about Skin, that it's more like uh, it's like a little playground for me. Um, and and there have been a couple of Skin short stories that uh, came after County Line. And every now and then, I toy with the idea. I certainly don't rule it out, but for now, I'm looking in other directions, and I've been comfortable with that. Well, let's talk about those other directions. Um, sort of related to Skin Kadash, uh, in a way that I hope you'll explain for the listeners, um, mm-hmm. is Property of the State. And one of the things I noticed about that right away, uh, I haven't read it, um, but in doing my due diligence, you've got a very young protagonist in this book. Yeah, this was... Uh... This was kind of a jump for me. It was the the, the story uh, is about a, a a teenage boy, sixteen year old boy named Joey Getchy, who is a foster kid. He has been in foster care um, since he was uh, uh, about five years old and has bounced around in different circumstances. And is none of his placements have been great. Some have been better than others. Uh, but the story opens with him getting into a big fight with his foster dad, and leaving the house and he ends up uh he he works for a family kind of doing odd jobs and he ends up living secretly in their house so it's sort of a uh you know from the mixed up files of mrs basely frankweiler uh meets rear window because while he's there he ends up realizing that things are not what they seem Mm. and uh over the course of the story um you know he gets uh accused of an attempted murder. Um, and because he's 16, it's, you know, I didn't want to turn it into a amateur sleuth. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not comical. It's not a comedy, although there's funny moments in it, but it's really, you know, a a kind of a serious exploration of what someone in a position of, you know, 
almost zero power is able to do to, uh, you know, resolve the situation that he's in. And it turns out that, you know, what he, what he finds is a lot grimmer than he realized. Um, there is some skin overlap though, because, uh, skin actually has an unnamed cameo. Uh, he appears with, uh, in one, one chapter, a few readers have caught that mo- uh, there, I, there isn't a whole lot of overlap between the skin series and, and and property of the state in terms of the readers, but but if you did catch that, and there's some minor characters from the earlier series that are actually kind of the cops investigating the crime, I, you know, I brought them forward. So, you know, it's a it's an in-universe extension of skin without being a skin story. Um, but that one, you know, it was a lot of fun to write. I mean, I I went through a period where I was reading. Um, you know, some of the darker young adult that was out there, I was and enjoying a lot of it. And I, you know, and I had this idea, you know, what if, a, you know, what if a kid needed to hide and where would he hide where he could get away with it and hiding in a big rich person's house where they didn't even know that you were living in a, you know, a room on an unused wing. And uh, meanwhile, you're winnowing out their secrets and finding out that, Oh, things are, (laughs) maybe this wasn't the best place in the world to hide after all. Um, It was a lot of fun to write. And, um, you know, once again, I mean, I think that one was very well received within the, um, you know, as a young adult, Um, it was my only young adult and will probably be my only young adult. Once again, you never say never, but um, I haven't felt a strong urge to return to, uh, you know, to that world. You know, we'll see. Now you, you write as both Bill Cameron and WH Cameron. And I am remiss in that. I didn't go back and break down which, which uh, version of you applies to which series. Yeah. I use Bill uh, all the way up through property of the state, uh, you know, and all the related short stories. Like I said, there's about six or seven skin short stories, uh, there's a Joey Getchy short story um, that I released as a standalone single uh, at, that kind of bridges the gap for uh, between Property of the State and the Skin series. Skin and and uh, Joey are both characters in that. Uh, and so I wrote all of that uh, under uh, Bill Cameron. But Crossroad was different enough that you wanted to use a slightly different version of your name. Well, that was, uh, that was actually a publisher request. They, um, Crossroad, uh, which came out in 2019, that was published by uh, Crooked Lane Books. And one of the things that they were doing, and I don't know how, if they're still doing that, or if that was, it was sort of an initiative where they were trying to uh, have all of their authors be basically initials. They didn't want it to be um, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think if there were if there were writers that they brought on that, you know, already had very, very strong name recognition, it might have been different. I'm not sure exactly what the philosophy was, but I think that, you know, they just said, uh, you know, when they when they expressed interest in the book, one of the things they said is, you know, we want you to write under initials. Are they trying to flatten the gender curve there a little bit? Do you well, think, or? I, I mean, I think that, that that could be that seemed to be uh what made the most sense to me. They didn't explicitly say that to me, mm-hmm. but you know, when you look at it, I mean, yeah, Crossroad, uh, the main character is a young woman. So I'm, and it's a, you know, I'm writing a first person story from the point of view of a young woman, uh, not trying to hide that, you know, I'm a, a grizzled old man <laughs> writing this young woman, but at the, you know, you pick up Crossroad, there's my picture on the back, but on the front, it does say WH. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I was fine with that. I didn't have a problem, you know, that's what they wanted to do. 
um, they didn't want me to hide who I was either. You know, they were like, sure. yeah, you know, it was all about that initial impression when they, somebody sees the title and the author, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm not being critical of it. It's interesting. The whole process of going from name to initials and last name, uh, if my history is correct, really began when women felt like they weren't getting the same consideration from readers because their name was a female name. And so, you know, Victoria Lynn would become VL and then suddenly the, the, that bias uh, dissipates and people are judging that work based on the merit of the work itself. And so, Mm -hmm. but now I've seen it go the other way. I've seen where men have started taking initials if they're writing in say the, the cozy subgenre or Mm -hmm. in romance or something to do exactly the opposite, I guess, but I guess the same thing in the opposite direction would be a better way to put it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, here, here endeth the political commentary for the show, um, <laughs> which it wasn't just an observation, a right. historical observation, but tell me about Crossroad. Well, Crossroad, uh, Crossroad came about because a friend of mine suggested that, um, uh, that I write a book about a sexy mortician and I can't even remember. He's like, you know, I think I was commenting on something about reading something about body preparation for a, because of course, you know, I mean, we're mystery writers. And so we dig into all kinds of things. And uh, sometimes the rabbit holes we go down lead nowhere, but sometimes they turn into stories. And I had gotten really fascinated by the whole process of how a body is treated, um, you know, after, you know, whether it ends up in the hands of a medical examiner or just goes straight to a, a, you know, a funeral home, what is it that they, that they do? And, and a friend said, Oh, well, you know, you should, you know, you should write about a mortician. And then he, and then he said, and it should be a sexy mortician. And (laughs) did you you just send your friend to get some therapy? (laughs) (laughs) You have to wonder. Well, so, but you know, that the idea stuck, I was like, well, this is really interesting. So, uh, and, uh, you know, and a mortician is in a kind of a unique position to see evidence of a crime that might get missed because, of course, you know, police and medical examiner offices and coroner's offices are often, you know, overworked. Um, it would be easy to for something to get by someone. And so I started to think about, you know, well, what kinds of of circumstances could I put this person in? Little by little, as I began to develop the character of Melison Duloc, um, I decided her sexiness was not going to be the defining feature of her, despite my friend's insistence. You know, it was going to be her, uh, you know, her history of who she was. She came into being a mortician by accident. Um, She didn't really want to do that, but her husband abandoned her. her. Her husband's family decided to take her in kind of because they felt bad over what he had done. Um, and she ends up in central Oregon working for a funeral home uh, and little by little realizing that this was her calling. And in the process, this, the story opens with her um, coming across a, uh, a horrible accident in the, you know, in, at a crossroad in the middle of the Oregon high desert um, and very quickly realizing that, uh, it wasn't merely a car accident, but something much grimmer was happening down to bodies being stolen from the funeral home. And <laughs> Well, um, wrong place. Right. Crime headquarters is located squarely in central Oregon, actually. Oh, um, so where, where I know that Barlow County 
is a fictional county uh, yes. that you created, but did you model it after a particular county or do you have an idea where it would be? Well, so sort of what I did is carved out little sections of Jefferson County and Wasco County and kind of, you know, stole some of their <laughs> uh, jurisdiction. Um, what I did, though, is I what I realized that I wanted to do is I wanted to have a lot of the places in Central Oregon that I really liked that really aren't that close together. I wanted to jam them closer together. So uh, I modeled my my main town samuelton roughly after prineville but with a little bit of redmond thrown in um i brought there's a a a peak that's sort of like smith rock there's a volcano called lost brother butte which is the lost brother of the three sisters um and, and so you know essentially what i did is i took uh, a landscape that you know as as you know in central oregon uh there's a lot of central oregon and I compressed it all into one little spot. I named it after Sam Barlow, who was, uh, you know, a historic figure who uh, created the Barlow Road that was part of the Oregon Trail. Um, you know, Joel Palmer, another figure involved in the Oregon Trail days, is the, uh, the person that the river's named after. So, you know, I tried to give it a flavor of real Oregon while also making it my own place. And it made it possible for Mellison to have a, you know, a one hour drive to places that in real life would be six, eight, 10 hours away from each other. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to check this out because um, I haven't read it yet. Um, I, I think the premise is fascinating, but of course, the at least contrived locality of it for me, it would be another fun element to it. I, I live in Redmond, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, for, for folks that maybe know a little bit about central Oregon, it's about 20 or so minutes outside of Bend, mm-hmm. um, which, which is a very different town than some of the towns that surround it. Uh, but yeah. it is beautiful country and Smith rock is really cool. Uh, and, uh, great weather too. I mean, it was in the sixties yesterday, uh, a little odd, but, uh, still it was in the sixties yeah. here. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. I love it out there. One of the things you did that was kind of interesting on your website though, uh, is you have basically a webpage for, the funerary service that mm-hmm. uh, she works for and for the Barlow County Sheriff's Office. And I'll tell you that the, the, the funeral business one looks very official and I have been on more than a few police department and County Sheriff's Office websites for a variety of reasons in my former life. And you did an excellent job of modeling uh, your Barlow County Sheriff's Office after uh, what they really do. I thought it was very convincing. Oh, good, good. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, that was a little fun thing. Uh, the, the, you know, there's a, uh, the, the sheriff's department is very important in the story. There's a couple of characters uh, who work for the sheriff's department that are significant. Uh, but of course I don't get into the nuts of bolts of, you know, what a sheriff's office mm-hmm. did, but, you know, as part of the, of promoting crossroad, I thought it would be fun to create web pages for some of these things. And I wanted it to be, you know, plausible. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time on sheriff's uh, department's websites and looked to see what they did and made sure that I reflected some of that in a way that was accurate. It also helps that my son-in-law is a district attorney. So I can always ask him, well, you know, what, you know, what kinds of things do you do when you're dealing with the sheriff's offices? And so he's always got good tips for that. So 
Well, and as I understand it, the audio version of this book is now available very recently. Yes, it uh, it uh, was just released on February 7th, and uh, the wonderful narration, I'm really happy with it. So uh, if you're an audiobook reader, it's a good way to get to know Mellicent. Might be the way I go. I, I tend to read just as many books on audio as any other method these days. Um, yeah, same. Well, uh, before we leave, Bill, I wanted to ask you what is going on in terms of your next book? Because I do know you're working on something and I guess true to kind of the picture of your career thus far, it's another departure. It is. I'm, I'm working on a historical mystery that is set on Tillamook Bay in the early part of 1942. So in the days right after the uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, a very interesting time. The Oregon coast uh, has a fascinating history during that period. There was uh, a tremendous fear that the Japanese would be invading literally any second. Um, the sense of this, the scale of the Pacific hadn't quite sunk in. Uh, and so uh, things were really stirring on Tillamook uh, Bay during that time. And I got really interested in the history uh, over the last few years and came up with an idea for uh, a murder that's connected to life on the homeland uh, among people who are getting used to being at war and trying to confront the realities of what might be, you know, coming down the pike for them. Obviously they didn't know how the war was going to go in, in January and February of 1942. So the, the, the risk the, you know, the very human response that they had to what was going on uh, really fascinated me. And I, got a crime that's connected to the army that's connected to the the japanese uh internment issue um and uh just to the you know sort of the fascinating world of tillamook county do you have a title at this point um my working title is the lethal shore i you know obviously we don't know if that's going to happen i'm um, i like literally, it yeah i like it I, I i feel pretty confident but you never know you know i'm i'm literally working on the last chapter when we get done here i'm going to go back and um get right back to work and i'm hoping that i can wrap it up today and get a draft off to my agent and then we'll see how long it takes to you know she'll have notes and they'll be back and forth but i'm feeling mm. pretty confident about it well, I won't keep you from that then. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll say our goodbyes. I do want to say it was uh, really good to talk to you in person again after, I don't know, 12 or 13 years of not having yeah. had a conversation live. Yeah. <laughs> Even though we've, the Venn diagram of our experiences has had some overlap in that time period. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here with you today. All right, folks, there you go. Bill Cameron, a super nice guy, very intelligent, uh, fun to talk to, writes a fairly wide variety of books there, as you can tell. Uh, and and uh, if any of those interest you, please check them out. I want to thank both Bill and Andrew for coming on the show, for being part of a double shot in March. Not something I plan on doing very often, but every once in a while, if I want to fit everybody in, I have to do this. And uh, I'd rather have a double shot than uh, leave somebody out. As you can see, both uh, of these authors were very interesting in their own right, and uh, I, I wouldn't have wanted you to miss hearing from either one. 
Also, I want to say thanks to Down Out Books for sponsoring the show. And as always, to you, the listener, thanks for coming along for this ride. I appreciate you being here for what is a little bit longer episode than usual. Coincidentally, so was last week with Dan Bronson. So hopefully you're seeing it as a wonderful bonus material. Uh, and the next episode, we're going to talk to Susan Wingate. That is the feature episode for March. So uh, it's going to be right up there in terms of uh, the length of the episode. But that is not until next week. For now, this is Frank Zaffaro saying, sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.